Amen. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. There we go. <laughs> All right. It's good to be back here at Promontory. I was uh, last week preaching at the Chilliwack campus, and I uh, got to celebrate Father's Day there. There was um, the kids, uh, I think the kids graduating, um, or the kindergartners were receiving Bibles. I think that happened here as well. Um, it's just... Uh, been an awesome time of celebration with graduations happening, and then we come here and we get to celebrate uh, healing of baby Ezra. Uh, I believe the grade sixes are graduating in Sunday school right now. It's a time of celebration. Uh, we get to worship, we get to gather together, we get to hear God's word. That's worth celebrating. Um, and speaking of celebrations, we also recently got to or see the Raptors win the NBA Finals. I got a little bit more excitement there out of the whole worshiping and everything, so I might have to get my other sermon. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I have to admit I haven't watched basketball for a long time, uh, but out of curiosity I thought I would check in on that basketball game a couple weeks ago, see how it was going, and I managed to catch the last 18 seconds of the game. Now. For those of you that actually watched the game, you'll know that those 18 seconds took about 10 minutes. There was stoppages of time, there was instant replays, it took forever. Now, I'm not personally invested in the team, but I kind of found myself getting excited as this tension built in that last 10 minutes slash 18 seconds. I actually started getting really excited for them. My hands were getting sweaty, sweaty. it was like kind of stressful. So when the clock finally ran out, when it was finally all over, I was actually pretty excited and I could hardly imagine how the real fans, the diehards, must have actually felt. And it was really cool to see them all, um, and if you looked, saw some of the footage from the fan zone in Toronto, where people were out on the street watching the game and everyone's dressed in their jerseys, they're cheering, they're waving flags, uh, there's just a lot of excitement, a lot of celebration. And the celebrations continued. Our Facebooks and Instagrams were flooded with celebratory posts. And this week they had a parade in Toronto to celebrate. And those of us, or those that maybe aren't basketball fans, are probably rejoicing because we can finally have it be done. We can finally stop hearing about it. I apologize to you that I'm even bringing it up this morning. But it's times and events like these that we really get to see people celebrate. We get to see people rejoice. People are overjoyed. They're excited to be, something, be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. They get to be part of this larger community. The, the whole country of Canada rallied around this team. We get to share in this victory that we really had nothing to do with except for cheering. But what if they hadn't have won? What if they had lost? What if it had gone all the way to game seven and they had lost there? Would the fans still be celebrating? Well, no, of course not. That would be silly. We don't celebrate losing. Our celebrating and our rejoicing is dependent on winning. We celebrate success, not failure. And yet today, we're going to be reading about someone who, by the world's standards, had failed, and yet he still rejoiced. We'll read about people who we would consider to be losers, but they're actually being rejoiced about. We're going to read about how a lot of things went wrong and yet God was still glorified. But before we read our passage, I just want to give you a little bit of context. Our passage comes from the book of Philippians. 
This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippian church. Now Paul's writing this in his captivity. He's most likely under house arrest in Rome and he's waiting to have his case tried before Caesar. He's writing to the Philippians to update them on his situation and to encourage them in theirs. And that's where we pick up. So this is Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So there's actually quite a bit going on here. There's this imprisonment, there's something about this imperial guard, there's these rival preachers that are trying to afflict Paul, and then Paul caps it all off by saying that he will rejoice. So let's just break this down into bite-sized chunks this morning. First, we're going to look at verses 12 to 14, this little bit about Paul's imprisonment. Second, we'll look at verses 15 to 17, the part about the rival preachers. And thirdly, we'll wrap it up with that last verse that talks about rejoicing. But before we begin, begin, let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you um, for all your blessings to us, Lord. Um, we thank you that we can uh, meet here freely, um, worship you, join together. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would give us ears to hear what you would teach us this morning. Pray that you would draw us to yourself and draw us to your son, Jesus. We uh, pray that you would lead us in worship and in your ways. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so let's talk about Paul in prison. It's not exactly prison. It's actually most likely that Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Now, house arrest back then was a lot different than it is today. You don't have those cool GPS ankle bracelets like you would see on TV. I mean, there's kind of a bracelet of sorts, but it's attached to a chain, which is attached to another bracelet, which is attached to a guard. And I can't imagine that would make going to the bathroom a very comfortable experience. <laughs> and Paul wasn't just chained to any old guard. It says here that he was chained to the Imperial Guard, also known as the Praetorian Guard. Now the Praetorian Guard is the highest level guard in the Roman Empire. They guarded the emperor, they guarded Caesar, they guarded Caesar's family. They also guarded high-ranking officials like governors and apparently high-profile prisoners such as Paul. In fact, the Praetorian Guard was so influential that on several occasions they actually staged the overthrow of an emperor and installed a new one that they liked. And these are the type of people that Paul finds himself chained to. Now what does Paul think of this situation? He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become throughout the, known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
So you know what Paul is doing while he's chained to these elite guards? He's telling them about Jesus. He's not writing to complain about the food or that he has to be chained to a soldier while he goes to the bathroom. He's actually writing to the Philippians to tell them how excited he is that he gets to share the gospel to the guard that he's chained to. He has a captive audience, pun intended. He's saying, it may look like I'm chained to this guard, but actually, this guard is chained to me. And the crazier thing is, it's actually working. These guards are talking about this religious nut that they've been chained to. Paul writes that the word has spread throughout the whole guard and to all the rest. Now, who are all the rest? They would be the Roman elite. They would be Caesar's household, the high-ranking officials, the other people that the Praetorians are guarding. At the very end of the book of Philippians, Paul mentions that there are believers within Caesar's household. So when Paul says that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, he really means it. In a strange way, his captivity, his imprisonment, has resulted in a direct line to the emperor's household. Paul sees beyond his immediate circumstances and recognizes what God is doing through this trial. Now, this turn of events should come as no shock to the Philippian church. We can read in the book of Acts what happened last time Paul had been in in Philippi. Any guesses? Last time Paul was in Philippi, he ended up in jail. (laughs) He's got this bad habit of getting arrested for preaching. (laughs) Now, when Paul was in jail back in Philippi, God came in the middle of the night. He causes this earthquake to break open the jail. Now, instead of fleeing, Paul stays and he ends up leading the jailer and his entire household to Christ. Now, imagine being that Philippian jailer getting this letter from Paul. And it's like, hey guys, it's Paul again. I'm in jail again. (laughs) Guess what happened this time? The Philippian church has witnessed firsthand what happens when Paul is put in prison. And now Paul's writing from Caesar's prison. Now that should be inspiring. That should be inspiring for us. In fact, verse 14 says, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's example has become infectious. Other believers are seeing what God can do through this imprisoned man, and they get to thinking, if God can do that through him and there, what can he do for me, or through me, out here? Others are looking at Paul and they're going, if he can preach while chained to a guard, what's my excuse? Now, I find this particularly challenging because I look at the persecuted church, I look at people that are thrown in jail for their faith, and I see the miraculous things that happen in the growth, and the church growth that happens in the midst of trial. And I think if God can make all that happen under that intense persecution, am I wasting the blessing of living in a free country? Are we as free people allowing ourselves to be emboldened by our persecuted brothers and sisters? Now, we may not face the same intense persecution. No one here is going to jail for their faith. And yet, we have situations in our lives that may seem to disqualify us from sharing about Jesus. We get burdened down with the weight of life. We get burdened down with going to work, with paying bills, maintaining relationships, family drama. How often do we tell ourselves, I just have a lot going on right now? How often do we let our situation dictate our outlook and our willingness to serve? 
Maybe we need to get inspired by Paul in his situation. He's been captured to stand trial. Most of us would actually see that as game over. We would see that as the end, they got me. But not Paul. He sees this as an opportunity to share the good news. And not only that, he's preaching this gospel to a seasoned battle-hardened guards. Not exactly the soft-hearted, open audience that we would hope for. So it would have been totally understandable if Paul had assumed that these guys didn't want to hear anything he had to say. But he doesn't. He tells them about Jesus anyway. And that seed that he plants makes it all the way to Caesar's household. You see, Paul's not defining success and failure the way you or I define it. He has this laser-focused attention on the spread of the gospel. So what if we started defining our success and our failure based on how much we got to talk about Jesus that day? Now, I'm really bad for this. I work an outdoor job, so often my happiness at work has this direct correlation to the weather. There's this inverse relationship with the, between the level of rainwater and the level of my happiness. So when I get home at the end of a workday and my wife asks me how my day was, my answer is often weather-related. When I get to church on Sunday, and some of you know this, people ask me how my week was, and the rain or the sun is probably going to be mentioned as some sort of gauge as to how well my week went. But what if I started to gauge my, how good my week was, not in how nice the weather was, but in conversations about Jesus? What if I defined a successful week as a week in which I saw the work of God in the lives of myself or in others? That would be living with a gospel perspective. That would be living like Paul did. So I want to challenge us, and myself included, that next time someone asks you how your day was or how your week was, think about how you define a good day or a good week. Was it good because you didn't get rained on? Or did you see God move? Was it bad because your kids or your clients were behaving poorly? Or perhaps was there a missed opportunity to share the gospel? Let's redefine what we mean by a good day or a bad day. Let's look beyond our circumstances to something bigger than ourselves. Let's let this example of, Paul, of Paul's imprisonment serve to remind us that our joy comes from something beyond our circumstance. And let's let this embolden us to speak the word in confidence, just as our passage says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, of course, as we read further, we get to see that not all of this emboldening to preach is so good. Verses 15 to 17 say this, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking, me, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So what's happening here is that now that Paul's in prison, other people have stepped in to fill his shoes in his absence. Other people have taken over the role of preaching and teaching in the church while Paul is away. Now, some are doing it because they genuinely care about Paul and they genuinely care about the church. But others are seeing it as their time to shine, as this is a little opportunity for them to slip in and get some of the glory for themselves. 
Not only that, Paul says that some of these selfish preachers are actually trying to afflict him while he's in prison. Now, I don't know exactly what that means by afflicting him in prison, but it's possible that as new church leaders, they might have cut off support to Paul because he's no longer officially in ministry. I personally kind of think it also would have afflicted Paul a little little bit to be hearing from prison who's running his church now and being like, really, that guy? And yet Paul says in verse 18 that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, doesn't that seem a little weird to you? I mean, it sounds pretty obvious that these selfish preachers are preaching for all the wrong reasons. And yet, Paul seems to be okay with this. So what's going on here? Well, let's break it down. First of all, and I would say most importantly to note, is that we're not talking about people that are preaching a false gospel. In Paul's other letters, he has very harsh, he's very clear that preaching the wrong thing is not good. This doesn't seem to be the case. So even though these preachers may have the wrong motivation for preaching, they are apparently actually preaching the true gospel. And yet, it seems problematic that someone with ulterior ulterior motives would be allowed to preach. This part of the passage causes trouble for me because it seems as if Paul is letting these guys off the hook for what they're doing. But is he really? Let's look at it this way. So these letters would have been passed around, they would have been read publicly um, in front of the whole congregation. So you can imagine that if you're sitting in church with one of these selfish preachers and this passage is being read out loud and you get to this part, some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. You hear that and chances are it would get pretty awkwardly quiet in there. If you're one of these preachers, you would know that exactly that he's talking about you. And if it were that obvious to Paul, it's likely that other people in the congregation also know exactly who he's talking about. So Paul doesn't have to name names. He doesn't have to call for a punishment. He simply says that there are people who are preaching with the wrong motivation. And I think that would cause most preachers to think to themselves, is he talking about me? By identifying the problem, Paul is calling those involved to examine their hearts. Now this is something that convicts me as a lay preacher. I get the opportunity to preach occasionally and I have to examine my heart. Am I preaching because I care about the gospel or because this is my time to shine? Am I doing it for God or for the attention? Now, the irony is not lost on me that Jonathan is away this week and I'm up here preaching. (laughs) Um, That's not the case. But this doesn't just apply to preaching. This applies to any public ministry, whether that's greeting at the door, serving coffee, or ushering. Anytime we take an official role, do we ask ourselves these questions? Do we want people to see us as involved, good church people? Or are we genuinely serving out of a love for God and his people? Now, ultimately, we're all human, we're all sinful, and there's gonna be times when our motivation starts to slide towards that selfish side. And we need that gentle reminder to check ourselves. But notice in our passage that Paul does not call for these preachers to be removed from ministry. He simply and graciously identifies the problem and rejoices in the fact that they are at the very least proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. So I'm gonna tell you a not so secret secret this morning. 
Preachers are not perfect. Christians are not perfect. We're just people who have put our trust in a God who is perfect. In fact, it's impossible for human beings to be perfect, and that's why God had to come down in the person of Jesus Christ and pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus was perfect for us. All we have to do is believe in him, and we are forgiven. Just like these selfish, selfish preachers, those sinful, believed in Jesus, and they were not condemned, so we as sinful people can take hold of Jesus and be saved. Now, does this mean we can keep on sinning because Jesus has it all covered anyways? Well, no, of course not. Just like in our passage, Paul identifies the envy and rivalry. He identifies the sin, and he leaves it there for the selfish preachers to examine themselves and work it out with God. Now, if they had just kept on preaching with this look-at-me type of attitude, would that have been okay? Well, no, of course not. It's the same with us. If we admit that something is bad, if we admit that something is sinful, we ask forgiveness for it, but then we continue to do it, are we really sorry? Are we really relying on Jesus, or are we just trying to take advantage of cheap grace? Paul was not giving these selfish preachers a hall pass to continue their envy and rivalry. Grace is not a hall pass to continue sinning. Paul pointed out the sin, he called it out for what it was, but he did not linger there, but rather pointed towards the joy of the gospel, towards the forgiveness of sin. While Paul recognizes that God still uses sinful people, that doesn't mean he condones sin. So speaking of sinful people, I was thinking of another wrongly motivated preacher in the Bible. I was thinking about another sinful person that God had used. His name was Jonah. Now God told Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh. He told them to call them to repentance and to turn from their evil ways. Yet instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah tries to sail to the opposite side of the known world. Now God puts an end to that plan pretty quickly. He causes the storm, which ultimately results in Jonah being tossed overboard and swallowed by a huge fish. After three days, Jonah is spit back out on land and he begrudgingly goes to preach at Nineveh. Now Jonah doesn't care about the people of Nineveh. In fact, he's preaching this turn or burn message, fully expecting the people of Nineveh to reject his message and burn. So he does his job, he says the message God told him to say, and then he goes outside of town to watch the fireworks begin. But then something unexpected happens. The people of Nineveh actually listen to Jonah's message. They repent from their sins and they turn to the Lord. And Jonah's livid. He's mad. He's actually mad that God didn't kill the people of Nineveh. So the story of Jonah ends with Jonah sitting out in the hot sun outside of Nineveh, mad at God for being too merciful. Jonah's this prime example of a wrongly motivated preacher. He was preaching repentance, hoping his audience wouldn't actually repent. He hated the people he was preaching to. He wanted them to die. And yet, somehow God uses angry Jonah to save an entire city of 120,000 people. So if God can use an angry hellfire preacher like Jonah, he definitely can use gospel preaching teachers, even if they have a self-seeking attitude. In fact, God can use anybody. The Bible is full of imperfect people, 
We just finished our series on the life of Abraham, and I'm pretty sure that throughout the whole series there was one sermon on something that Abraham actually got right. As Paul sees, he understands this concept when he talks about these rival preachers. He knows that it's not about him or them, just like it wasn't about Abraham or Jonah, but it's about God. It's about what God is doing. It's for his glory. Once again, we see that Paul is taking this higher perspective. He's seeing beyond the mess of church politics, and he's looking at what's truly important, the gospel being told. He sees that despite the problems, God is working. He rejoices that the human foibles are not hindering the spread of the good news of Jesus. Now, I find this encouraging because if God can use a jerk like Jonah, maybe he can use me. If God can use, make his gospel message heard through wrongly motivated preachers, maybe he can make something out of what I have to say. If those rivaling preachers could be used for ministry, then certainly God can use any one of us here, regardless of our shortcomings or our excuses. And that's a reason to rejoice. Just as Paul writes in verse 18, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So, so far we've seen two examples of things going very wrong in our passage, yet so right in terms of the gospel. We've seen Paul sentenced to house arrest, awaiting trial, chained to a guard at all times, and yet he rejoices because the gospel is being spread. We've seen these wrongly motivated preachers using their role, for minist- role in ministry for personal gain, and yet God still uses them to preach his word And again, Paul rejoices. In the book of Romans chapter five, Paul had this to say about rejoicing. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Ultimately, What Paul is rejoicing in here is the hope given to us by Jesus Christ. He can rejoice even in suffering because his hope is in Jesus. And he knows that suffering is worth the reward, that it produces perseverance, endurance, character, and ultimately hope. He knows that while it feels like the world is beating him down, and he literally got beat down by the world several times, that the battle has already been won. Despite the beatings and jail time and all the rivalry, he lives in the hope of the glory of God. He lives in the hope of heaven. Do you want that hope? Do you want to be able to rejoice even when life sucks? Well, I do. But it's hard to rejoice when things aren't going well. It's hard to write a sermon about rejoicing after working all day in the hot sun. It's hard to rejoice when the bills pile up when a family member dies, when life is a mess. But we have a God who entered that mess with us. We have Jesus who took on flesh. He gave up his position in heaven to live on earth and die for our sins. And if anyone had the right to complain about his situation, it was Jesus. He went from living in heaven to being tortured to death on a cross. And yet God used that terrible situation to accomplish our salvation and salvation for everyone who believes in him. 
And it's kind of weird if you think about it. We come here on Sunday mornings, we sing songs, we celebrate this death. We sing songs like nothing but the blood. We sing about blood. It's weird. <laughs> we rejoice in that. It's kind of weird. But we celebrate it because we know what it accomplished. That through this one act, light was brought to a dark world. In fact, it's this act that Paul is emulating in his imprisonment. He's sharing that light in the very heart of darkness. He's sharing that light to the very seat of power of the Roman Empire. It's in sharing the light of Jesus that brings him joy, despite the darkness surrounding him. Now, oftentimes, we try to brighten up our darkness by our own efforts. We try to look on the bright side. We take action to improve our situation. Maybe we buy shiny new things to make ourselves feel better. But this is about more than just looking on the bright side. This is about seeing what's actually going on. This is seeing that true joy doesn't come from better things or a better life situation. It comes from the Lord and sharing him with others. Now, we often think that if we just had things a little bit better, if we just had a little bit more money, if we were just in a little bit better shape, if we just had one more thing, then we would be happy. But the truth is, you don't need those things to have joy. You don't need them to have a reason to rejoice. Because what we truly need is Jesus. Finding the perfect life situation or the perfect church will not bring us joy. Paul had a highly undesirable life situation and he had a highly dysfunctional church. And yet he found reason to rejoice in the spread of Jesus' name. Now as we close, I want us to think about this. What gives you reason to rejoice? Where does your joy come from? Is your joy rooted in something that will cause you to rejoice even when life sucks? Do you want that kind of joy? If so, I invite you to get to know Jesus. Read God's word, meet his people, talk to him in prayer. We have a prayer team, we have, well, we don't have a pastor here this morning. I would talk to you. We would love to talk to you. <laughs> Uh, and pray with you about receiving the joy of Jesus this morning. Do you already know Jesus? Oh, that's awesome too. Share the love of Christ with someone this week. Maybe it's someone that you wouldn't think would want to hear it. Or maybe it's just a matter of building up a fellow brother or sister in Christ. But what's the biggest thing stopping you from sharing Jesus with others? Do you see this as an obstacle? or do you see it as an opportunity? Now, I went to university to study theology. I wanted to be a missionary, and I ended up being a construction worker. And sometimes I'm tempted to think that my job is keeping me away from ministry. But the truth is, it's actually an opportunity to be a witness for Christ to a totally different group of people. The truth is, I lose sight of that. And passages like ours today remind me that we need to look beyond our immediate circumstances and see what God is really doing. So let's take that gospel perspective into our week. Let's learn to rejoice even in the hard times. Let's keep our eyes open for God working and rejoice in what he does rather than how things go for us. Let's close with this encouragement from Romans 12 says this,
Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Now changing gears a little bit, one way that we celebrate, one way that we rejoice um, in God's work is through uh, the act of communion. I want to invite the communion servers, whoever you are, to do your thing. Um, Communion is this visible reminder of the sacrifice that Christ uh, gave for us. The bread represents his body broken for us and the blood, or the the juice represents his blood shed for us. This is a declaration of faith and this is uh, something to be taken by those that have faith in Jesus. Maybe you're not at that point in your life where you're, you're ready to express that faith in Jesus and that's, that's fine, that's okay. Everyone, every one of us here was at that point in our life at one point. Don't feel obligated to, to come up to receive it. For those of you that are participating, I want to encourage us to examine our hearts, to confess our sin to the Lord, and then participate in these symbols of grace. So I'm going to pray. Um, worship team, you're up here. Uh, Elise will lead us in a song, and uh, you can receive when you're ready. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this example of faith in your word, Lord, for this example of how to rejoice even in trial. Uh, We pray that you would uh, teach us how to follow it, that we would hear your words and uh, take it to heart. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who accepts us even when we fail at this. Lord, we pray that you, you would lead us to you, that you would teach us to rejoice. Give us eyes to see opportunity where others may see failure. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son. We thank you for this opportunity to experience the symbols of your sacrifice. We thank you for your son, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.